Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Miss the show, no worries, we've got you covered on point and on the podcast. While a barbecue business has now become a gong show, it's not really the face of small business. We're going to talk to one owner who worries it will distract from the fight. What is the real story behind vaccines? We talked to the man who warned months ago that the Trudeau government waited too long and may account to why we're getting so many different answers on when it will arrive here. Care gone wrong, we get into the latest installment of how COVID is spreading through LTC, long-term care. I mean, did we learn nothing from the first time around? Plus, where do you even look when looking for long-term care? If not long uh, waiting lists you'll be confronted with, it's also the sticker shock of how expensive private care is. So let's get talking. What I'm hoping to do here, because I don't believe my restaurant will make it through a winter of lockdowns. I think there's a lot of other businesses that won't make it through another winter of lockdowns. I'm hoping that by doing this, I'm standing up for the little guy, giving some other people some courage to do the same. You can be right and wrong at the same time. And Adam Skelly of Adamson's Barbecue picked the wrong battle, the right fight, and he does not speak for all businesses. Alex Pearson with you on this Thursday, November 26. Wishing our neighbors a very happy Thanksgiving. Enjoy the football that has been on uh, all day long. Husband's uh, hard at work, apparently, watching football. How does that work? Uh, but let's talk about Adam Skelly, and then let's not talk about him anymore, because uh, I'm, pretty, I'm pretty tired about this story, and I think he's gotten enough free publicity. But, you know, sure, he's right to fight for small business, but he has gone about it in the totally wrong way, and he's created quite a gong show. And he was arrested today. The mounted unit got called in. I mean, can you imagine? The mounted unit was called in to arrest one Canadian business owner, the city of Toronto actually using more resources to arrest this one business owner than it has in going after gangs in this city or stopping rail blockades in the spring. I mean, I found it a little heavy handed and it didn't need to go this far, but uh, it's clear city officials wanted to make an example of this guy because he ended up making them look pretty inept trying to figure out how to do their own job. And as often happens, then they go very heavy once they figure it out. But Skelly may have wanted to help small business, but he's done far more damage to businesses, not to mention his own, which he seems determined to drive into the ground. And so people now apparently see him as the face of small business. Well, he's not. He doesn't speak for them. And so his theatrics should not reflect on what is a very real crisis facing millions of business across his country. And given how inept, you know, the officials have shown themselves to be trying to figure out how to write a ticket, only took them a couple of days. I mean, it's clear that, you know, Skelly or any other business could have just opened up quietly and no one would have known the wiser. So his mistake was, you know, declaring the fight to the world on social media 
and it ended up inviting needless attention that brought him a whole lot of scrutiny that's going to bring him many more headaches. But it also invited the very kind of people who won't win you support. I am getting paid. You're paying me. Service paying me. You are paying my bills, honey. While you're working, I'm sitting at home doing nothing. I'm out here protesting while you're paying my bills. A moron who brags about cheating the system does not win your support. Cheaters are losers. And losers like her just cheapen the very real and very legitimate fight small businesses face. And so Skelly's not the, the face of small business. What he has become is a magnet for anti-maskers and conspiracy pushers who hijack this very real issue. And today, it is his barbecue, but others are starting to push back. Uh, we saw a gym in Scarborough open its doors in protest. There's a golf simulation shop in Toronto that opened up. And I suspect that this is only going to be the, sp- the start. And hard to blame them. I mean, they're going broke. They're being punished for something out of their control. And I think it all could have been very much avoided. Frankly, no business should have been closed because there isn't evidence, not that we have seen, to justify driving, you know, the spread. Bonnie Henry, the chief medical officer in BC, she stated she's not going to close businesses because she cannot find the data to support such destructive measures. And BC's spread is higher than Ontario. And then here, those in charge are just uh, seemingly making it up as they go along. And we know that because across Toronto and GTA, we don't even have accurate tracing, if any at all. We learned that in today's new modeling. 70% of the cases, they don't even know where they're linked to. <laughs> Great. Because if they had this data, we'd have seen it by now. So they're using lockdowns as a quick fix, but it'll fix nothing, but it will break the backs of millions of Canadians. And COVID is not only a threat to our health, it is a threat to our lives because a lot of people are going broke. And instead of doling out billions to students and billions more to fraudulent Serb claims like that idiot woman, governments at every level should have actually built a plan to protect businesses forced into shutdown. I mean, offering up loans is not a plan. All it does is add more debt to businesses that aren't earning money. And for whatever reason, nine months in, these bozos in charge don't get it or they don't care. And if they really want to help businesses, do your job. Get proper tracing. Get proper rapid testing. Protect those actually being killed by this virus. And come up with a plan so that we can live with this thing safely while waiting for a vaccine that we're told is coming. But now that's very much in doubt. And it's starting to smell like a scandal because now we're getting a whole bunch of different answers every day. On Tuesday, Trudeau said it would be delayed for months. And on Wednesday, Dominic LeBlanc said, no, no, it'll be here in January. Today, Christine Elliott announced, we're not getting vaccines because deals haven't been finalized. And now the health minister is calling anyone who questions vaccine arrivals conspiracy pushers. Will help save Canadians' lives if the member opposite and the leader of the opposition stop their members from sharing fake and dangerous news like the member from Lethbridge. The member from Carleton will stay focused on saving lives of Canadians instead of spreading conspiracy theories. And in fact, the member from Carleton-Nose Hill is focused on keeping us together rather than pitting us apart because you know what the virus thrives on, Mr. Speaker? It thrives on us working at opposite ends. We need to work together. We need to stay together. We need to support provinces, territories, and indeed Canadians. And that's exactly what this government has done since day one. 
So you ask to work together, but then you name call and insult when you're just asked for a basic question, like when are vaccines arriving? Come on, give me a break. These guys need to get their crap together because Trudeau may have gotten away with SNC, blackface, even we and every other scandal. But these talking points on vaccine do not fly. And if they're playing games or lying about vaccine access, then that's not just dirty politics. I mean, they're playing with Canadian lives. And by the end of December, they're now saying in the United States, 20 million people will be vaccinated. That's by the end of December. We're not expected to get vaccines until early spring, in which they're saying, if it's best case scenario, we might get 3 million people vaccinated. That would be by April. But that's only based on best case scenarios. And so they're going to have to manage this thing. Manage expectations. If we're not getting a vaccine, tell Canadians. Because what's worse is telling Canadians that they're going to be safe and a vaccine's going to arrive and then all of a sudden it doesn't arrive. And then people just lose faith in the system, stop buying into your message, and then go reckless and rogue. It doesn't help anybody. So a, a little bit of straight talk on this thing would matter. And the reality is I don't think they can give that straight talk because, as we've talked about many times before, as we'll talk with a, a professor at 8 o'clock, they ordered the vaccines late. We were one of the last countries to the table on vaccine orders. And when we did order them, we did not negotiate the rights to produce vaccines like countries like Mexico and India. So that's why we can't produce them because they didn't negotiate it. I mean, the procurement minister might be a smart lawyer, but she's a lousy procurement minister if that, if, if that is a factual truth. I mean, that's crazy. So we're either getting this thing or we're not. But they better start coming up with answers and talking points that match. Because right now, we're getting way too many stories. AstraZeneca, uh, Pfizer and Moderna are currently going through advanced approvals with Health Canada. So what we've said is at the beginning of next year, in January of 2021, assuming those approvals are given, Evan, Canadians will be able to start being vaccinated. Uh, and, and to say that we're at the back of the line or behind a whole list of other countries, again, is very much exaggerated. That is a very big promise. The question, is it true? So that's Dominic LeBlanc, who talked to CTV, uh, saying Canadians are going to start getting vaccinated by January. But this is not what Justin Trudeau said Tuesday. That's when the prime minister said we'd have to wait for a few months because we can't produce vaccines and countries that make their own will get treated first. So I think what's coming clear is that this government seems to be spitballing the response to what is the most important thing to Canadians. And I think it's a bit dangerous because vaccines are our only freedom from the virus. And if the Trudeau government is making up answers because they don't have any, uh, that's problematic because the reality is, and we've talked about this as far back as August, is that the Trudeau government dragged its feet on procurement. And so should sure, they can boast that they bought up hundreds of millions of doses. But while the UK, the US, even India rolls up its sleeves in a matter of weeks, Canadians are very likely going to be watching from the sidelines, and we could be for months. I want to bring Amir Adaran into this conversation, professor of law and medicine at the University of Ottawa, also a trained epidemiologist. And professor, it was you who warned of this months ago because you wrote about it in McLean's. We talked about it on the show that we were very late to the game. And of course, 
everyone wants to be right about it, but in this one, the costs are so high that it's not the kind of story we want to celebrate. And it's very unfortunate news. Um, Mm -hmm. Now, you're right. I I think the writing was on the wall for this, and I tried to warn about it in August, and what I feared would happen is happening. Other countries are going to be vaccinated far ahead of Canada. Um, Just in the last few minutes, the Public Health Agency of Canada confirmed that at best, what they call optimistic, there would be enough vaccine for three million Canadians by the end of March. That's optimistic. Hmm. In contrast, the United States is going to have 20 million Americans vaccinated by the end of this year. So by the end of by by the end of December, by the end of December. So they'll have 20 million done by the end of December. I they probably will be, you know, over 100 million um, vaccinated, I would hope, or at least high tens of millions by March. And our high water mark according to the federal government in Canada, is at most 3 million by March. Right. And so, you know, that that is being optimistic, but the messaging is very muddled. I don't know if Dominic LeBlanc is lying. I don't know if the prime minister doesn't know what he's talking about. I, I long thought that Patty Hyde, never knew what she was talking about. But, you know, this is, I don't think there's a more important issue on the table for Canadians, because as long as we can't get vaccinated, people are going to die, people are going to get sick, and the economy is going to be destroyed. And all of those have, you know, really devastating, um, you know, impacts on our lives. Uh, and I think Canadians, if we're watching the running vaccinated, are going to have to look to the federal government and ask, you know, what the hell were you doing? You know, Alex, if I sound a bit down today, um, I am. I'm really quite heartbroken because everything you've said is correct. And I feel like the person who said it months ago and asked for this to be solved months ago, and unfortunately, it hasn't gone the right way. You're right that the messaging from the federal government has been muddled. Uh, That's putting it politely. Uh, The prime minister a few days ago Mm -hmm. claimed that Canada has no ability to manufacture vaccines. That is dead wrong. The prime minister himself visited a government-run vaccine lab that is making vaccines, not for COVID, but for other things, a few months ago. He personally went to the lab, and then he gets out in front of the cameras and says, we don't have such a lab. I mean, this this isn't just spin. This is dishonesty. And I, I don't I don't feel good about that. Um, I think that we need to hear more from the technical people and less from the politicians. Frankly, what Dominique LeBlanc has to say is of very little interest to me because he actually doesn't know what he's talking about. And he and other politicians simply need to give us the straight goods. How many of us do they anticipate being vaccinated by when? And that is a right. message actually best delivered by the technical people, not right. by the politicians themselves. I mean, if, if you at least manage expectations, even just for mental health well-being, I think people could at least get their head around it uh, because it's almost torture to say, well, it's any, any minute, any minute, and then it's not for another you know year. Um, and we may have signed all these contracts, which is terrific. But as I understand, the contracts we signed did not even get licensing rights to manufacture, which begs the question, 
why wouldn't they get those licensing rights so that we could produce the vaccines? That to me is the saddest failure of them all, because the AstraZeneca vaccine is one that we can manufacture in Canada. And the company has been very generous mm-hmm. in letting other countries manufacture their homegrown supplies. So this is a company that not only has a good vaccine, but they've, they've actually offered to make no profit on it for a period of time and let other countries manufacture it for homegrown use. Australia has a license from AstraZeneca. They're making it themselves. Japan does. India does. Brazil does. Even Vladimir Putin's Russia got a friendly agreement with AstraZeneca to do this. We could have done it too. And we didn't. Can you believe it? We've we've Mm -hmm. fallen behind Brazil and India and Russia in doing this. It's a shame. Well, it's it's more than a shame. It's incompetence. And, and the procurement minister may be a very smart lawyer, but she's clearly not versed in procurement. And uh, the bottom line is we've got a bunch of provinces now. We've got Christine Elliott, a number of other premiers coming out and saying, well, we've been told by the federal government that we are going to get certain stocks by certain times. And now you've got this kind of war of words between the federal government saying, well, we never said that. Well, clearly someone said something to somebody and caught in the middle are Canadians. You know, and and that's a good point at which to say something about the provinces. They are not ready for this either. And and I I can tell you right now, we're going to see bottlenecks and disasters in how the provinces administer vaccines when they come available. In the United States, all 50 states have a concrete public vaccination plan and the federal government has a national vaccination strategy this is all public you can read these documents warp speed all states you know Mm -hmm. in canada none of those plans are public we do not have a national vaccination strategy that's public the provinces have not made their plans public experts can't look at these and kick the tires and decide if the the proposal to vaccinate is being handled competently it's all secret And most of the work hasn't been done. So even once we get the vaccine, by God, are there going to be problems in the provinces because they haven't done the homework? Well, I mean, we've seen how the flu shot rolled out. I just managed to get mine, uh, you know, a couple of days ago, but it has been uh, anything but easy. Health Canada, of course, has to sign off on this. um, And AstraZeneca just actually announced today that they had a bit of an error in one of their trials. So they have to do another global trial. Do you believe that enough scrutiny is being done on these, given how fast they're being produced and made? I do. And I know a lot of people are nervous uh, because records have been broken here. I, If I were offered the first vaccine, I would say thank you. I would accept it humbly and I would roll up my sleeve. So I personally am willing to take that jab. I'm willing to have my family take it. I am confident that by the time these vaccines are approved, they will be safe. If I had any doubt about that, I would not be telling my wife to do this. I would not be thinking of it for my children, but I am. Right. Now the question is, when will it arrive? I'm with you on the rolling of the sleeve. 
I just need to know when the heck it's going to arrive. All right. Well, clearly this is a, a continuing and evolving conversation, but we'll continue to have it because you've been uh, warning for a very long time. And I appreciate that. Thanks for your time. Thanks, Alex. Please stay safe. You as well. That is uh, Professor Amir Adharan. And uh, of course, you can read his article. He wrote about this back in August in McLean. So it's not like it's coming out of nowhere. Um, so read for yourself and decide whether you feel uh, you're being told the truth. And right now, all we're getting is a lot of political spin from all levels of government. If you miss the show, of course, you can download the podcast. Go to 640 Toronto Search On Point. That's where we download all the good stuff. This will be on it. And when we come back, we'll get into our counterpoint, brought to you by our good friends over at Pizzaville. Round one coming up next here on Point. I'm Alex Pearson. This is Global News Radio. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Good to have you here on this Thursday. You know, Adam Skelly may be getting all the attention right now, but he is not the face, nor do we, you know, nor do I think he does he speak for small businesses across the GTA. And these are businesses not just fighting for their survival. This second shutdown follows months of slowed business, really cumbersome restrictions and a lot of instability for businesses. So for many of them, this is going to be a final nail for thousands of businesses across this country. And if something doesn't give, the Canadian Federation of Independent Business now projects mass layoffs coming in a matter of weeks. And, you know, we always hear this saying, essential business. Well, who are these experts to question who and what is essential? Anyone who owns a business or creates jobs is essential. And anyone who has a job is essential to our economy. So why are we belittling and cheapening the word essential when all of these people are essential. One of those essential people would be Louis Manzo, owner of Cabin Barber and Gentleman Supply. Good to have you. Hi, Alex. Thanks for having me. So you're a small business owner fighting for your life. Give me a, a bit of a characterization of what you face right now. Yeah, I think we're fighting tooth and nail. Just to no longer even turn a profit, it's more about keeping the lights on. Um, and at least having a place for our staff to return to once they're allowed to come back to work, because that's the biggest challenge for us now. And where my, my interest is, is to make sure that my staff are safe, my community safe, uh, that we're able to actually keep the lights on, um, you know, because, of course, the second shutdown, you know, uh, although we might have seen slight indications that something would be modified or we wouldn't be able to conduct business as usual, this was, you know, a complete uh, a complete end of revenue, a complete end of services. And that's a huge challenge for us. Yeah. I mean, you're a barber shop, and, and, you know, the one big ax I have to grind with the decision makers is that, you know, gyms, barbers, restaurants, you know, there may be cases, but in no way have we ever been presented with data to show that they're driving the spread of COVID. In fact, uh, you read the reports today on, on on the projection numbers. In fact, they can't source any of the spread. So you guys are being shut down um, for something that you're not responsible for. Do you know of any cases that you produced? That's the biggest frustration in that there's been there's been no data that's been given to us that suggested that small business was the transmission of, of COVID. 
And uh, I think the reason we're more frustrated is because we had to move quickly, uh, you know, with a, a reopen that had us change the business operations entirely. You know, the way people walked in the store, the amount of people mm-hmm. that came in the store, the protocols and the PPE and the investments that we had to make to make sure that the stores were safe. Um, so for us, the frustration is massive. And I get it that, that numbers went up and we all have to do something to make sure that we're responsible and, and bringing the curve down. However, I can't imagine that there was a safer place than, um, in a lot of cases, a personal services shop. We were already heavily mandated uh, in advance, well before COVID uh, with health regulations to make sure that the environments were safe to begin with. Then add to it all of the uh, extra efforts that we put in to make sure you know, you couldn't get into a, into one of my shops in the cabin without a temperature check and somebody greeting you at the door with hand sanitizer. So there was no one in our shop that wasn't sanitized or at least monitored for temperature. So to me, that was, you know, far and above many other environments that were open for business. Um, so, yeah, when we find out that there's been no real indication that it's been transmitted from shops like ours then you, you kind of wonder like how is it that this is now being passed down to us and why are we responsible and you know we're 28 days before the the, the holidays and christmas mm-hmm. you know that's that's upwards in some cases for some retailers it's between you know 50 60 uh, percent of their yeah, annual revenue uh, we, sure we're coming to black friday tomorrow and you know, it's Black Friday for a reason. It's the first day of the year that retailers actually make it into the black. We move from red to black because this is where we actually turn a profit. And like I said earlier, we no longer have our sights set on profit. As a matter of fact, we just have our sights set on staying alive. And that's yeah. not that's not clear right now as to what the outcome is going to be. And so when you see a business like Adam's Barbecue or, you know, this guy staying open defying the lockdown, do you understand that or do you think that muddies the waters? Well, you know, I'm not in a position to judge anybody. And I think we're all in some form or fashion becoming unraveled. And uh, everybody's got their own tolerance or threshold for pain. So I think that I think that it does muddy the waters in that, you know, it, it, it likely was a great PR move and a stand for small business. However, I think that you add to it the divide that happened as a result of that action. You know, some people are using it as a platform for anti-mask and anti-vaccine. Some people are using it to push back on media. And I think really there was an opportunity there if, in fact, there needed to be a stand for somebody to, to, to come to the table and say, I'm standing up for small business. I'm willing to take the hit. Um, I need to be open. And that's where my my um, my I don't want to judge what he's done or she's done or anybody else does. And I certainly want to begrudge anybody a chance to earn a living, but I'd rather on my side stay in solidarity with my brothers and sisters that own shops like ours or small businesses that are in main street um, and recognize that like we're all in this together. I'm just fortunate that we were able to move quickly and, and move online and have products to sell online. It's, incredibly difficult to sell a haircut online or a beard trim or a shave Mm -hmm. um so i'm worried about my staff i'm worried about the fact that they're not employed right now and this is going to be really hard hitting for them as much as for them as it is for us as a business i'm just trying to make sure that they have a place to come back to when we do come back 
Yeah, and we're supposed to get some kind of financial update on Monday at the uh, federal level. And as I understand, there should be some targeted help um, for you know certain sectors. And uh, my issue is that I don't think any businesses should be shut down. And if they had to be shut down, then it is the responsibility of the federal government or provincial government to make sure that businesses are made whole. It's not enough, I don't think, to give a business a loan because all that does is create more debt. Um, and so if there's not more help in um, Monday's announcement, and, and I say that, by the way, as a fiscal conservative, but I, I'm looking at the bigger picture that if there's no more help, you know, we're not going to have any businesses left. Um, are, without help, can you hang on? Without a question, no. There's no mm-hmm. chance. Um because right now the current relief programs that are in place just aren't enough. They're not. They're not. Um, it's not enough to be able to give us loans and say that they're interest-free and there's a portion of it that's forgivable. Uh, because at some point, you know, uh, the piper is going to come collecting, and yeah. we won't be in a position to be able to repay those loans. And add to it that for the the times when we were re or reopening, um, you know, the minute that that happens, the landlords are there with their hands out saying, you know, relief is over. It's time to pay the price. And just because you're open doesn't mean you're doing business. Consider that it took a very long time for people to come back into the idea that it's okay to shop. It's okay to be in the chair. It's okay to get a haircut, but they weren't coming back in the numbers that we saw before COVID. They weren't coming back to the businesses that we created and it took a long time. It just started to turn the corner where we started seeing regular bookings and the chairs were getting filled and people were feeling comfortable. As a matter of fact, they said that in our environments that they felt most comfortable and safe. And if everybody else was doing what we were doing, then I can't see why we would be you know, all painted with the same brush. And that for us is, is an ongoing challenge. I think to your point, that the um, the funding and the relief needs to be looked at and to make us whole is really the only answer. If we've been mandated to shut down, we have no options unless you're looking to suffer fines and yeah. and criticisms, and then you do more to create that divide than uni- unify. Um, and, and quite honestly, a lot of small businesses have no opportunity to move as quickly as they need to now. They don't have mm-hmm. websites where they can sell product or they're in a position where they're personal services and they don't sell product. They sell services. Or, or, or you know what? You sell a lot of things when people walk in. You know, you pick up a trinket or someone, you know, you can just push an extra. A lot of about, the thing about the retail experience is just being in that store. And I think people forget that. It's not as... You know, sometimes you'll buy the hand cream. Oh, and I need a shaver. Oh, and, and by the way, I'll get a lipstick when all you went in for was maybe, a, you know, a nail clipper, whatever. That's part of the experience, and it's just not available. I love your site. It's cabingoods.ca, so people can still go online and shop and uh, pick up and support local business like that. Um, we'll keep in touch, and we'll see how the fight goes, Louie. But um, I just uh, I, I hope for guys like you and businesses like you that you can pull through. I'm grateful for you having us on, Alex. Thanks so much for everything you're doing here. Appreciate it. That is uh, Louis Manzo. He owns Cabin Barber and Gentleman Supply. And I'm, I'm not kidding. Go see the website. It's cabingoods.ca. I've already found a couple of things I'm going to pick up. Hopefully my husband's not listening. Uh, there's some amazing – it's really super Canadiana, which I love. It's all about Canadian. I love the look of it. So there's an opportunity for you to help local, buy local, um, and keep someone in business, and uh, and it's easy. So cabingoods.ca. When we come back, we'll talk about all of this and more because, boy, there's a lot of talk uh, talkers today, and we'll do that in Global Talkers next. Stay with us. Alex Pearson on Point. This is Global News Radio.
Great to have you here on this Thursday. And the spread of COVID-19 in long-term care homes was rampant in the first wave, accounted for the lion's shares of death. And now we're in the second wave. And again, the virus is spreading quickly and just as deadly. In this part of Care Gone Wrong, we dive into how to stop the spread. It's a difficult enough decision to put a family member into long-term care, but to have them in a care home during a pandemic is almost non-stop stress. Samantha Cook of Hamilton had to make the gut-wrenching decision to put her mother, who has dementia, into a care home just before the pandemic hit. I wake up with nightmares every single night. I'm terrified. But I know that every single worker at every long-term care home, they wake up every morning wanting to do a good job. For Sam, there's nothing more important right now than protecting seniors, the group most vulnerable to the ravages of COVID-19. Dr. Zane Chagla, an infectious disease specialist at St. Joseph's Healthcare Hamilton, says there are three basics that can help protect seniors and stop the spread. One is... Preventing it from coming in the door, so making sure staff and patients are screened and potentially even using surveillance as part of that and testing. Number two is making sure that patients have access to single bed rooms such that if COVID does come in, it's limited to that patient uh, and um, that personal protective equipment is available uh, consistently for staff such that A, that they can care for those patients safely, but B, that they're not at risk of acquiring COVID-19 and then spreading it to further patients. And then C is that making sure that these things are reacted to incredibly quickly if there's any hint of a patient with symptoms consistent with COVID-19 that they're able to get tested with a rapid turnaround time such that you know these outbreaks are recognized early and the appropriate measures are taken such that there is not significant spread within an institution. He says there's some hope with the new vaccines just announced. If you can get this rolling out with the first doses that the government has already bought into care facilities in the next three to six months, that is a huge step forward if it works the way we plan. So, so you know, there is some optimism here. There's a number of steps, as you said, we need to go through. But if we get to that point where we can get, you know, jabs in the arm in three months in, in long-term care, that's something major to, to help with the outbreaks ongoing in our communities. Infection prevention and control is something that's been studied for years, and there were protocols developed not only for those living and working in long-term care, but in how the facilities are actually constructed. Barbara Shea is an infection control professional at Mount Sinai Hospital in Toronto and a healthcare facility design consultant. She says infection prevention and control has to be a basic when considering any kind of new construction. The design of of infection control into the building is key, and it's key in more areas than just ventilation. It's key into the finishes and surfaces. It's key in terms of number of private rooms or single rooms and one one bathroom per person. Now, in long-term care, um, the standard isn't for one bathroom per resident but if you wanted some way for to improve it would be to have everybody to have their own bathroom obviously right but that's not always possible in the, under the current circumstances she adds there's a scale for infection prevention and control the most effective way of protecting somebody is to eliminate a hazard so to physically remove the hazard substitution is the next place if you can't you know remove it then you replace it with something maybe that's better but the third piece down is engineering which is you know you isolate people from the hazard That means, you know, you build things like airborne isolation rooms for diseases that are transmitted by airborne route, like chickenpox and tuberculosis, for example. And then the next step down is administrative control. So we create policies and procedures that tell people how to do things more safely. And then the very bottom of the pyramid is the use of personal protective equipment. 
So personal protective equipment is always what we do as a last step because we haven't been able to eliminate or substitute or engineer in a safety measure. So that's why this aspect of infection control to me is so fascinating because we get to build things in that actually protect people in the future. You know, if you think about long-term care homes, people bring their own furniture in. Well, they need to do that. It's their home. But if we could get people to bring things in that are more able to be cleaned as opposed to, you know, things that aren't able to be cleaned and disinfected, we're protecting people. But it's always that struggle with long-term care home because it is a home and we need to remember that it's a home. But that's new construction. The Ontario Long-Term Care Association says one of the concerns now is older homes. Donna Duncan is the CEO of the association. Yes, one of the, the those, those old homes that were built to the standards of the 1970s where they have three and four bedrooms and shared washrooms. She says the association has been advocating for change. We've uh, been advocating to ensure that every single home will have uh, infection prevention and control expertise, a dedicated individual to do the surveillance in the home to make sure that everybody is actually doing what they need to from a distancing perspective, following the protocols for hand hygiene and how they wear their personal protective equipment. But even with all of this, the virus, when it gets into a care home, is still spreading quickly. Professor Colin Furness is an infection control epidemiologist at the University of Toronto, and he says a key factor is not only the fragile health of those in long-term care, it's that they're in close contact with a high-risk group personal support workers. People we could characterize in in many cases as being um, racialized, uh, underpaid, uh, in a risky position with with not enough training, not enough personal protective equipment, and residing in communities where COVID is extremely prevalent because of overcrowding, because of poverty. And this is connected to, uh, this is certainly connected to race and it's connected to immigration status. So you have this, you have this very, very unfortunate situation of personal support workers coming from a very dangerous environment and going into an environment where obviously people are very vulnerable. From the perspective of a worker inside a long-term care home, one of the key problems has been the staffing. The use of part-time workers who have to make a living by cobbling together two or even three jobs that was cited early in the pandemic as a means of transmission from one care home to another. Global News spoke with a woman we're calling Sally and we agreed to discuss her voice. This has been a problem for years in the long-term care home is the the short staffing, the pay, (laughs) the procedures, everything. And it took a global pandemic and the Canadian military to come in and say, shine light and say, hey, we have a problem. We need to start doing something about this. And nobody really seems to have the answers. And when we come up with answers, it feels like it's falling on deaf ears. And meanwhile, all of the PSWs and all of the nurses and, and, and are sitting here saying, this has been a problem for years. This has been a problem for years. She says you can do a lot to change the facilities, but one thing has to be kept in mind, the relationship between those who work and live in long-term care. really scary seeing a resident worry about what's going to happen and then have them say, honey, are you going to be okay? What about your family? Are you going to be okay? Yes, I promise we'll keep you safe. It's hard. We love these people. Dr. Chagla says methods to control transmission in long-term care facilities are the biggest bang for the buck investment in minimizing the amount of death and significant illness from COVID-19. For Global News, I'm Shona Thompson. Tomorrow on Care Gone Wrong, sheltering seniors, the iron ring. How do you actually put an iron ring around nursing homes to protect seniors without locking them down and families out? 
we'll dive into that. So what are your options for long-term care? I mean, a lot of us don't think about it until, of course, confronted with the need. And then once you start looking into it, you're met with long, long waiting lists or sticker shock over the costs of private care. Where do you even get started? We'll talk about that next. Stay with us here. Alex Pearson on point. This is Global News Radio. So we've been digging into this issue facing long-term care in our series, Care Gone Wrong, and it's not really until you need care or have a loved one who needs to go into care that you learn how hard it is to find good care. And that is, of course, if you can get it, because there are massive wait lists years long for government care. And if you're looking into private care, you might want to prepare yourself for how expensive it can be. Francesco Grasso, principal over at Grasso McCarthy, Inc., joining us uh, now. And this is a particular expertise of yours, so I'm glad you can join us. Thank you very much, Alex. All right. So obviously long-term care is big in the news because we have seen the the – you know, the, the dam burst on, I think, something that was coming for a very long time with this pandemic. But certainly, I think it raises questions about like how you find the care. And really, it wasn't until we were in this with our stepfather that we realized how daunting it is to navigate the system. It is it is very confusing. Yes, it's confusing. And part of the problem is that the care really isn't accessible. You said in your intro, you know, people can wait a year. I mean, my mother's been on a wait list for five years. So, you know, factor it into, you know, that we have 40,000 people on a wait list to go into long-term care. And I might add, Alex, there are people on that wait list who actually own their own home, who Mm -hmm. have a little bit of a support network around them in terms of family. And what they really need is a proper program that can better enable them to stay at home for, for longer. And the sad truth is that in the province of Ontario, like in many other provinces, we simply do not have those programs. There is a huge gap. It's the stark choice that you have is you either keep your parent home with mm-hmm. absolutely inadequate care, something that wasn't even engineered to deal with the problem of a frail elderly person at home. They're paid mm-hmm. in the wrong way. It's organized wrong. Or put them in a long-term care home. That is the stark Mm -hmm. choice we have, and it should not be that way. No, I mean, in our stepdad's case, he had dementia. We had no choice but to get him into a home because he was harming himself and he was becoming a harm to others. Um, And so, like your mom, went on a waiting list, and then because they couldn't find anything for him, he ended up in some shelter for uh, refugees, which wasn't at all equipped to deal with uh, dementia patients, and and not uh, to any fault of the frontline workers, but he didn't get the proper care he needed. Um, But this is the stark uh, reality facing people who might think that the care is there, and it is not. And it is not. And, 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 you know, to your point, even though your father, your stepfather may be, you know, obviously one of the people who really does need to get into some kind of institutional care, Um, you have to understand that a lot of the spaces are also being taken up Mm -hmm. by people who may not have needed to be there. So the point is we have to have, to benefit everybody, we have to have more tools in our toolbox to be able to provide programs to keep people out of long-term care for longer. Uh, That will help not just those people, but also people like your stepfather who actually do need institutional care. Right. And so if you're looking for, obviously, home care, it would be the most ideal for everybody. And it is actually cheaper 
um, than it is putting someone in one of these warehouses, which is how I kind of look at long-term care, because that is what we're doing. We're warehousing people. Um, so ideally, you would want to keep them in long-term care. But just to touch on the private care side, I mean, private care is lovely, but it's like five grand to 15 grand. It's very expensive. And that's monthly. Yeah. Yeah, well, it is. But I mean, to say, you know, if you don't have a choice, you know, you have a home that you can sell, you know, hopefully you're in a in an area where the home will sell for a lot, that you can afford that. And you're absolutely right. A lot of people can't. Now, do understand that long-term care under the private public system, you know, is also, you do have to pay. Now, it's much less. Yeah. And obviously, if you're below a certain threshold, there are subsidies, et cetera. About $2,000 a month, which is a lot mm. better. Um, and, and for those who couldn't afford it at all, uh, there are subsidies. But once again, you know, you said it, it's ch- I don't even know what is actually cheaper in the sense of this. I'm not sure that if we provided home care the way we should be providing it to certain uh, people, that it's actually going to come in at a huge cost savings. It will obviously... Uh, be a cost savings in terms of having to build beds because the person already has a home. And and it will definitely shore up the time that it would take to build those beds because that's the other thing is everything they announced today in terms of long-term care and, oh, we're going to get more beds and all these announcements, they are not going to be online for a very long time. So that is truly the benefit. I don't want to, to give the impression that, oh, it's a lot cheaper, because if we were to deliver it properly for this constituency, I don't think it would be a lot cheaper. I just think it would be better for a lot of people. Yeah, I mean, what you what you wouldn't get, maybe the human cost, I mean, at least uh, in home care, you've got the um, ah. the ability as a parent to advocate for your, your loved one so you can keep an eye on their care. The, the person's in a less stressful environment because it's their own home. And so maybe they won't deal with secondary issues of getting things like COVID or the flu. I mean, so that you can, I guess, save costs to the system in that way. Um, so there are definitely upsides to it. And I And I'm I'm praying to God they get it before I get to the to the need of this. Yeah, you know, uh, and I'll just I'll say this: you're absolutely right. That is a huge cost savings there. You know, well, we did actually some studies and we took a look at. Uh, I know that uh, the University of uh, of Waterloo and John Hurdies was doing some work uh, on this, and basically what they found that it's incredible how much lower the incident of um, of infection, staff infections on COVID, are amongst home care other than any other, you know, compared to any other setting. It's staggering. I mean, it is so much safer, so much safer. Quality of life is definitely better. A person's in their home. And you said, well, I really wish that, I hope they kept this online. And I think part of the problem, and I think moving forward, you know, media has to stop doing what government does, which is whack-a-mole. We're always trying to Mm -hmm. fix the problem after it's already festered and then it's exploded. And we never really have the interest in forward thinking and, and looking to solutions that could mitigate the problem to begin with. And the media, unfortunately, tends, and no offense to you, Alex, but you know, I listen to all the questions to Ford, uh, Doug Ford, when when he does his daily briefings. And, you know, it's all whack-a-mole. It's all this person died. And, and I understand that to a point. But at some point, I'd like our media to start saying, what are you doing? What have you learned from this? And what are you actually really going to do to help mitigate this so that more people aren't in congregate care send- settings in the future? 
Yeah, I mean, knocking a politician off their talking points, uh, as you well know, is nearly impossible, but they get away with doing it. And I think that's why we don't see any results. And, you know, certainly uh, once this thing is behind us, if it ever is behind us, there will be lots of studies and inquiries and commissions and all the rest of it. But we're talking a long time before we see change if we don't start demanding it. You're right. And we have to start demanding it. And I would say, yeah, we're going to get the studies and yeah, we're going to get the recommendations just like we did after SARS. And then they're going to sit on a shelf and they're not going to be acted on. So that's where I'm hoping media will keep the feet to the fire and make sure we start to really address the real problems, the root problems, so that they don't fester as they did over many, many years. Yeah. Nonetheless, just quickly before I let you go, what is your um, advice for when people should start looking for home care so you're not stuck on a waiting list? Or is that even possible? Well, is it home care or long-term care? What are are you asking about? Well, long-term care. Yeah, Which, long-term I would care. Hope is home care. care yeah. I mean, it has to be uh, home care. Has to, you have to go to your health care provider, your family doctor, nurse practitioner, and they would order you uh, or they would refer you to home care. And then home care has to assess you and determine if you meet the eligibility requirements. And that's another problem. With regard to long-term care, my advice is very, very clear. When you start to see your loved one is at a point where, hmm, You think that things are on a downbound train. You know, unfortunately now, you really have to get them on lists because it is years. Get them on a list and, you know, you always have the opportunity to say no if the name comes up. But the truth is, get them on a list, get them on a list. Yeah. Good opportunity, good uh, advice, and uh, I appreciate your insight. Always a pleasure. Thank you so much, Francesca. Stay safe, Alex. Bye-bye. You as well. That is uh, Francesco Grosso uh, joining us uh, today. And again, it is a very difficult uh, you know, system to navigate, but navigate it we should. Um, you know, And assuming one day they'll actually fix it before we're all dead. Nonetheless, when we get back, we'll talk to the doctor. we got new modeling numbers. What do they tell us? Well, one of the big glaring things I see is that they can't source where any of the cases are coming from. Maybe if they could source the cases, we wouldn't have so many cases. But that's just me. We'll talk about it next here on Point on Global News Radio. You can join us Monday through Friday live, 6.30. I'm Alex Pearson. This is On Point here on Global News Radio.